Good morning. Glad to see you on this MLK weekend. Everybody glad for the long weekend, but we are going to work together and serve together tomorrow, so looking forward to that. Um, a special welcome if you're visiting with us. Uh, we're very glad that you're here, and um, our heart's desire this morning is just to put our, our attention to Jesus and to focus in on Him, and um, that's why we're here. We want to meet to Jesus and meet for Jesus. And so just want to remind each of us that uh, this morning, as we continue our study in the Gospel of Luke, we're in Luke chapter 10. If you want to go ahead and uh, turn there, go to Luke chapter 10. And um, just want to give a, a speck of context, especially for our newer folks, and then um, we'll pray and get in, right into the passage but just remember from the very beginning of the book that Luke writes to Theophilus so that Theophilus can be certain of the things that he's heard about Jesus. Um, and so we want to remember that throughout our study of the book that the focus is on Jesus. That's the whole focus of the Gospel of Luke. Um, and the reason that Luke writes to Theophilus is so that he can be fully certain uh, of his faith and he can, he can have um, a firm faith with his life built on the truth of Jesus Christ. At the end of chapter 9, um, Michael last week left us with the cost of following Jesus. And it's a pretty um, intense um, you know, set of things that he gives. And I'm just going to read it. Um, you can go back and listen to the message he gave last week if you missed it uh, to, to get the commentary on it. But I'll just read beginning in verse 57. It says, as they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another he said, Follow me. But he said, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. And Jesus said, Leave the dead to bury their own dead, but as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. And yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. And Jesus said to him, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. And now I just want to pick up and read in chapter 10, the first few verses, um, and then we'll pray. It says, After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him, two by two, into every town and place where he himself was about to go. And he said to them, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the privilege to be here this morning. We thank you that we can look into your word, uh, the Bible, as the kids upstairs remind us, Lord, that um, we look into your word and we see your words in it and we see your truth in it, God. And so please instruct us according to your truth. Jesus, we thank you that you came, that you died on the cross, that you rose from the dead and that you offer life to all who believe in you. And Lord, uh, those of us who believe in you, we pray that you would help us to follow you fully and that our faith would grow. Lord, please grow us in our faith even today as we look to you, dear Jesus. We ask these things in your precious name. Amen. So here um, in Luke chapter 10, beginning of it, we're actually going to see Jesus and his use of short-term mission trips. You might not have looked at that passage that way before or thought about Jesus in relation to short-term mission trips. Um, but Jesus used short-term mission trips, and he used them effectively. He used it with his 12 disciples, and now he uses it with these um, 70 disciples that he has. And, you know, today, many times, um, short-term mission trips get a bad reputation or bad rep, um, and sometimes for good reason, uh, because oftentimes they can be, quote-unquote, Christian tourism, you know, um, kind of disguised as mission or with the label of mission attached to it to make everybody feel good about what they're going to do. And it might have the name mission trip on it, but it might be actually very far away from Jesus and his mission. And so we want to take note this morning of how Jesus 
does mission, why he does mission trips, you know, why he sent them out in this way on these short-term deals, what we can learn from it and apply in our context today. We do need to understand that what we have here is describing what Jesus did in this particular context, in this particular time. He's not necessarily giving a prescription for all time and to follow it in every single you know, way. But it is still yet very informative for us. And we want to, uh, so we want to look at that uh, this morning. But at the same time, we don't want to throw the, the burden of legalism on top of it. Because then we actually will undermine what Jesus is setting out to accomplish um, through his people. So he says this, that he appointed um, 70 others also, or yours may say 72. Um, I've read it both ways this morning, and I'm just going to go ahead and address that right off the bat. Let's just get it out of the way. It's a really small thing, but I know if I read 70 and some of you in your Bibles it says 72, you're going to be like, wait, mine says 72, or vice versa. Um, In the old manuscripts that we have, there's a number of them say 70, and a number of them say 72. At some point, there was a transcription Error. There's not an error in the original, you know, Word of God, the first copy, you know, written. But at some point along the way, um, a scribe or two either put on or left off a two. Okay, we just put it, you know, that way. Um, there's a good number of manuscripts on both sides. It's difficult from the manuscripts to say definitively which one is right. It's also a very small point. Um, and the fact that this is, this is what I want you to get out of it and to understand, because we have so many manuscripts, we know where these little points are. And so we can look at them and examine them and talk, to, talk about them. Um, and, and, and it doesn't have to you know, hinder our faith or we don't look at it and say that, you know, oh, well, this proves that the Bible has an, an error in it. Um, because remember, our contention is that in the original writings, it was without error, but we understand that there were some transcription you know, m- mistakes that happened throughout the centuries. The amazing thing, because we have all the manuscripts that we have, we know where those are and what points those are about, and they're open for anybody to look at. We hide nothing and have no need to hide anything because we have the truth. You know, and there's, so there's no need to say, oh, well... You know, there's, there's not really a difference. Well, there actually is a difference here. It's just not a consequential difference. Okay. Now, if you're trying to figure out, you know, 70 or 70, you know, 2, um, you know, 70, that number is used much more frequently in the Scriptures and in the Old Testament. If you remember, we recently had Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration with Moses. Moses had, you know, the 70 elders of Israel um, back in Exodus chapter 24, um, and you know, that number is used, you know, numerous times. You don't really find 72, uh, that number, you know, so much in the Old Testament. But that could also, you could argue it on the other side. Well, you know, Jesus maybe had, uh, he sent him out two by two, and so maybe he needed to have 36 teams and not 35 teams to accomplish what he was setting out to do. Again, it's not consequential. Okay. But he sent them out. Why did he send them out? Why did he send them out? He sent them out before his face, so they're, and, and that's important because they're on the, the mission that Jesus has. You know, it's his mission. They go bef- before him, and they're going to go into every place where he himself was about to go. So their purpose is to prepare the way for Jesus. We need to understand any short of mission, short or longer term, that the purpose is to prepare the way for Jesus, to point people to Jesus. We need to understand that we don't save anyone. We are not the hero of the story. We are not what it's about. And we do not have the power to you know, save life in an eternal sense or to take life in an eternal sense. It's God who saves. And so you know, we have this theme Throughout the Gospels of preparing the way for Jesus, we see that in the ministry of John the Baptist, of preparing the way you know, for Jesus. And so this is what we're to do in people's hearts today where people do not have the message of Jesus yet, is that we are to take and prepare the way for Jesus so that they can meet him and to know him. 
that's priority for the why of mission. And so you know, we rightly will be skeptical of any mission that has the name of Jesus attached to it, that actually the purpose of it isn't first and foremost Jesus himself, that people would see him and to know him. Now, we may do other things in order to have that opportunity, or we may do other things just because it's the right thing to do because the needs of the people in a certain place are great on a physical level, and we see that even addressed here, that physical needs are taken care of, but that the priority of the mission is Jesus. The priority of the mission is preparing the way for Jesus. And so if you're ever thinking of going on a mission trip, you know, if you ever go with our church, you can be guaranteed the priority of the mission will be we're going to tell people about Jesus. If you are going with any other group and you ask, what's the priority of this trip? If the answer is not Jesus and his message, you're better to spend your time and effort and money elsewhere. Bottom line. Because there's a priority to the ministry that we have. There's a priority to it. Because Jesus has his command for us, even as we see in Matthew 28, is that we go and we make disciples. You know, it has to be part of introducing you know, that first phase of that disciple making or the following up and you know, making more mature disciples of Jesus. And that in- can incorporate a wide you know, range of activities, and it certainly doesn't um, undermine taking care of practical needs, but if we only take care of the practical needs and we're not making disciples, then we're no different than secular groups who are doing these sorts of good deeds. It has to have Jesus as the priority. And then, notice this, Um, he said to them, the harvest truly is great. But the laborers are few. Therefore, pray the Lord of the harvest that send out laborers into his harvest. So let's, let's look at that. The harvest truly is great. The harvest is great. Now that should give us confidence as we go to fulfill the missions that Jesus gives us, right? That the harvest truly is great. That should give us a great confidence. But it says that the laborers are few. The laborers are few. So there's a a contrast between the size of the harvest and the number of those who are willing to work towards that harvest. There's a contrast. And in today's day and age, we can go ahead and and bring in our modern understanding. Our workers are disproportionately distributed in in a pretty dramatic fashion. And we have to acknowledge that reality and seek to address it. Because in many of our you know, cities and states, there's, there's places in our, in our country that have, you know, don't have enough workers, but in many places we have, we have plenty of workers. We have plenty. And in other, and in other parts, there are very few, you know, where you can have you know, one person you know, for every 100,000, you know, one follower of Jesus working you know, for every 100,000 or more people, and that's not enough. It's not adequate. Um, you know, one of the things that I've been meeting with some people uh, talking about you call it Athens sending movement or send Athens, and having a little um, a, a conference thing this Friday evening and Saturday morning. But talking about that, that's going to be one of the themes of it. Is this this um, distribution of our workers is not proportional to the harvest, and so we have to address that. Um, and hopefully send more people from Athens into the harvest field. But it says, the laborers are few, and then therefore pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Now that's a great prayer, and it's one that we can always pray because Jesus tells us to pray it. Jesus told his disciples to pray it. To pray for the Lord of the harvest. Pray for God, you know, the Father, to send out workers into the harvest field. That's something that we can pray on a very regular basis, and we know it's a a good prayer and it's something that God wants us to pray. But now remember the context. Who is Jesus saying this to? He is saying it to the 70 or 72 that he is sending out. 
So those who are praying it in, in this context, we have here in the scripture, are also part of the answer to the prayer. So understand when you pray it, you may be part of the answer to that prayer. And don't exclude yourself from being part of the answer to that prayer. Be open to being part of the answer to that prayer of one that God would send into a place perhaps where there are are few workers. You might be part of that answer. One thing we should go back to verse 1 and notice is that he sent them two by two in that you know, Jesus has never really intended for ministry to be done on a solo basis. Um, and we see it throughout the New Testament. We see, you know, you rarely find Paul alone. He's always with Silas or with Timothy or with someone, you know, early on with Barnabas. He's with others. You know, usually it's more than even just two. It's multiple people and they're a team working, you know, together. But, you, you know, Jesus didn't say, you know, go out by yourself and be a lone ranger and just, you know, do it all on your own, that he puts people together to accomplish his, his mission. And, you know, and, and you even see that in the local churches and how they're supposed to be set up and designed as we have in, in our church that, you know, it's, it's a group of, of elders who are responsible for the church. It's not one person. It's too much weight for any one person's soldier, you know, shoulders. And it's not... Uh, it's not fair for that individual or for everyone else. And yet, in our modern times, we have such unrealistic expectations. You know, just frankly, and you know, I, I've seen so many of my friends who have gone the the traditional, you know, kind of modern organization of church route, where they're the the guy, the senior pastor, the whatever, and a lot of times they just have to get out. It's just too much. And it's too much because that's not the way God ever intended. They end up being isolated and alone and on an island as opposed to part of the fellowship and working together, you know, with others. And so, you know, we want to take the word of God. It is informative and it does tell us, you know, how we're to do mission, how we're to do the church and these things. And if we take it seriously, it saves us from many problems and from many errors. That doesn't mean we don't have problems and difficulties because guess what? We're all still human, and we all still carry around a human flesh. And so that, by definition, means we're going to have our issues from time to time. So we're going to pray. We're going to pray for the Lord to send out more laborers into his harvest. And then in verse, beginning of verse 3, he says, Go your way. Go. You know, many times today we have a, you know, come and see. Well, if people want to know Jesus, they'll just come to the meetings and they'll see. And then, you know, and, and many people are reached through a come and see. Come and see what God's doing here. But even with the come and see, there's usually somebody going and at least inviting. And saying, come, you know, go, going and inviting to come and see. We see that even with some of Jesus' earliest disciples of, you know, look, we may have found the one. Come and see. You know, so that's, that's okay. But our priority has to be on go and tell. Jesus here is going to the places where, you know, people haven't been flocking to him from these places yet. And he's going there to them. There were plenty of people where Jesus was for him to continue to preach to, but he's not satisfied with that. Because there's still more who haven't heard yet the good news of the kingdom. And so he sends these out to prepare the way for him to go. And with that, we want to keep in mind as we're praying about, Lord, what do you have us to do? And where do you have us to go? And where do you have us to serve? That when Jesus, you know, Jesus says, go your way, I mean, he's giving the direction. You know, he didn't send all 70 of them to the same place. You know, he sent them out to the cities, to the places in that, you know, where he's going next. But there's some, there's some direction there from Jesus on you go here and you go there. You know, go the way that you're told to go from the Lord. You know, and, and I want to be really clear about that because as a church family, you know, we love everybody in our church family. And of course, 
you know, we want people to stay and currently give it, you know, Peter's, you know, staying in our basement for a while. We figures out his next step. And I give him a hard time. Come on, man, you can just get a job in, in, in Athens and you know, joke around, you know, with him. And if the Lord has him stay in Athens, then that's what we want for him, right? But we want to be really clear that if that's not what the Lord has for him, then we want what the Lord wants for him. And for every person in our church, we have to want what the, seek to want what the Lord wants for each one. That we need to be obedient. And so when the Lord says, go, you know, we want, to, we want to have people in our hands because we're family. Like, we want to be in the hands, right? But we have to have open hands. That when the Lord says, go and be, you know, go reach these people over here, that you're obedient to that and you, you do that. And that everybody is supportive and prayerful toward that end. But we want, we want to send people, you know, because of mission, the mission of Jesus Christ. Not just because, well, it'd be cool to live in place X. There's a difference between those things. There's a priority of, you know, the why. The why to the big questions of our lives, the answer has to be Jesus. To, be, to, get, to get married or not to get married, you know that the answer to that question needs to be Jesus. What do you want me to do? Jesus. The question of who should be Jesus informed, not I think he or she is cute informed. Jesus informed. The job that you, you know, the career, the everything, it's got to, it needs to be Jesus informed. <clears throat> so when somebody says, why did you, why did you do X or why did you choose Y? Your answer can be honestly Jesus, not because, well, I thought this was a good idea. There's a very big difference between your answer being Jesus and your answer being, well, I thought. One's of the Lord and one's of the the flesh. And in his grace, I think the Lord helps us to make a lot of right right decisions in our flesh. But it shouldn't have to be that way. God is gracious, certainly. Because we know, if we're honest, every last one of us has made bad choices. Bad choices. Every last one of us. The Lord is gracious, and he is compassionate. But we do want to seek him, especially if we move forward, individually and collectively. Lord, what is your your desire? God is so gracious and compassionate, he's even seeking those who have not yet started to look for him. That's how gracious God is. Is that even when people aren't looking for him, he shows up. Even when people aren't knowing what they're looking for, he shows up. Had a conversation uh, randomly, not randomly, because, I mean, it was a divine appointment. Let's be real. Um, I I hadn't been um, at Little Italy downtown in a a little while. It had been a while, and I'm, you know, trying to eat a little healthier, and so, you know, Little Italy Italy is not exactly known for health food. It's known for delicious. Um, And so, and Greece, and, and I like those things, and so... I, you know, I'm going through and I'm like, I'm going to get a slice of pizza. So I, I go in and the guy who takes my order, he's got this like a noticeable, you know, limp. And so I say to him, I was like, you know, what are you, you know, did you hurt yourself or get it? You have an injury or whatever. And he says, yeah, about a year ago, he got hit by a car and leg broken and back broken in multiple places. And it hurts every day. He's going to have to live with it. But he says, you know, I know the man upstairs, if it wasn't for him, I wouldn't be here. And so, okay, talk a little bit. Leave, I got to talk with him some more and, and uh, share the gospel with him because it's like, you know, you said you wouldn't be here if it wasn't for, you know, the man upstairs. Whenever somebody says the man upstairs, that's, that indicates not a true understanding of God because that's not really how we talk about the Almighty, right? The all-powerful creator of the universe. Um. Is that, you know, he has you here for a reason. You're still here for a reason. 
and that reason is found in Jesus Christ. That he is the answer. He is the solution, you know, to it all. And, and you know, he was so open and receptive because of what he's experienced that he knows something is happening, but he doesn't know all the, the why or the, or the what or the how. He just knows something is happening in his life and that these changes are happening. And that he's still here, that there's got to be some purpose to his existence. He's been, you know, had an awakening to that reality. So, what he needed them, what so many need today, because the harvest is truly is great, they need somebody to explain Jesus to them. And it's a privilege whenever we have the opportunity to explain Jesus to someone. And to show that person who Jesus really is. It's a privilege to do that. And the great thing about it is that, yeah, we, you know, you might not have, back in the day, you might not have been one of the 70 that got sent to a specific place for a specific deal. But for all of his disciples, the message is make disciples. That, that's part of what it is to follow Jesus. If, if your life as a follower of Jesus doesn't in some way involve making disciples and helping people to see Jesus, helping people to grow in Jesus, then your life in Jesus certainly isn't complete. Because it has to go outside of ourselves into others. By definition, following Jesus in, in, you know, encompasses that. By, by definition of what it is to follow Jesus, is to, to have an other's sort of focus in your life. Okay, now we're going to get into the how here. In verse 3, he says, I send you out as lambs among wolves. When he sent the 70 out in pairs of two, remember he didn't send like 70 in mass into a place with a little bit of you know, protection and strength through their number however marginal that may have been. But he sent them out two by two. I mean, they could easily be overwhelmed. You know, just in human terms, five angry men versus two followers of Jesus. Who's going to win that this fight? You know, I mean, it's not going to be much of a fight. But he, he sends them out as lambs among wolves. He sends them out small, but if you look through the scriptures, it's indicative that this is God's work. Because throughout the whole Old Testament, God wasn't interested in using a large force to accomplish something or a large number of people to accomplish something. He always took the small. And why did he take the small? You know, why did he take Gideon from 30,000 men down to 300 men for his glory, because he didn't want the people to be able to say, we, look what we did, look what we accomplished, so that God would receive the glory. He would know it was from the Lord, and so that his people would grow in their faith. And I think we're going we're to see this in this passage, that one of the purposes that Jesus has for mission is that the, those who are laborers would grow in their faith, that their faith would be stretched that it would be tested, that it would grow. Mission needs to encompass that reality. In verse 4, he says, Do not, you know, don't take a money bag, a knapsack, nor sandals, and greet no one along the road. And, you know, all of that from our perspective seems a little bit crazy. Wait, Jesus, you are intentionally telling these people to go unprepared and that they cannot support themselves in their work. Not to take any money, not to take supplies. And that on the fir- that's really, the, I think, the emphasis on the first part of it, about not taking money or a knapsack, not taking a bunch of extra stuff with them. Is that dependence on God is what's important to understand there. But when he says, don't take sandals and greet no one along the road, um, there's a reason for that as well. And that is it is a short term. 
in this context, it's a short-term mission trip. It's intense. You're not going to be so long that you're going to wear out a pair of sandals and you need a second pair. And you need to do it quickly, and so you don't be distracted along the way. I'm sending you to these places. You know, Jesus is sending them to those places because that's where he's going to go. And, you know, these men are from this, you know, from this area. And so if along the way they stop and talk to everybody they know, the timing is going to be thrown all off. Some of them might actually get to where they're being sent. And again, this one of the, it's one of those things that's, um, you know, it's a description, and it's what Jesus asked in this particular context. It's not for us a mandate that when we're, you know, on a mission trip, if we, you know, when we go out, it's like, okay, we're going to send this team, you know, to Texaco today, and this team's going over to Zongalika. That, you know, sometimes it's on the way that the best opportunities actually happen, and we need to be, you know, listen to the Holy Spirit about that. And there's sometimes where we just, you know, we've got to go because we're going to a new place and these people haven't heard, you know, about Jesus yet. And we've got a short window that we're there to accomplish a task. And so go and we need to listen to the Holy Spirit about that. And so what I want you to get out of this is there's a reason why he says this in this time. But in, in our context, it's, it's more about listening to the Holy Spirit and what he has for us that day or on that particular mission, and to, to understand that and to be willing to adjust based on the leading of the Holy Spirit. He says, whatever house you enter, first say peace to this house. You know, it gives a, a greeting of shalom, uh, you know, that, you know, typical Hebrew um, sort of greeting where he says, you know, peace to this house. You know, when you're entering into the house, he says, whatever you enter in, first say peace to this house. He says, if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest on it. If not, it will return to you. <clears throat> so he's, he encourages them, you know, to try to find a person of peace. And when you get right to the city, like it's going to be, if there's a person of peace there, it's going to be provided from the Lord. It's just going to happen quickly. And he tells them to remain in that house, eating and drinking such things as they give, for the laborer is worthy of his wages. He doesn't want them to have this idea that they're freeloading, that they're, they are on a mission, that they are doing work, that they are doing something that's important you know, in the sight of God. Um, and so when the people there offer you food and you know, a roof over your head and something to drink, like, you take it. But he also tells them to remain in that same house, not to say... Well, you know, I've been here for a couple of days, and I've noticed that the people over there have been nice to me, too, and they've got a nicer, bigger, better house. And I heard that the lady over on 3rd Street, she can cook. Like, she can cook. You know, like, I am headed there. You know, he doesn't want them to do that. He wants them to be focused on their mission and not so concerned about improving their circumstances, it's like, hey, you're on a short-term mission trip here. You do not need, you're not laying down roots. You just need to get in, do your work, and you know, go. So we need to think about that, you know, as as well as we go on these short-term things. It's temporary. What can I mean, and what I would contend is what can you not handle for a week when it comes to, you know, if your bed is uncomfortable or you have to sleep on the floor. <laughs> Or if you don't like the food that much, or whatever. Come on, it's a week, it's two weeks, it's a month, it's whatever. It's like, it's not that long. You can, you can handle it. You can do it. Just trust the Lord to provide for you. It's going to be okay. Do not go from house to house, but whatever city you enter and they receive you, eat such things as they set before you, and heal the sick there, and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. So there is the practical. They're going to heal the sick when they're there. They are taking care of people's physical needs. Again, remember context, they're preparing the way for Jesus. And so there's evidence through their healing of the sick that, you know, this is from God. And even today, when the gospel comes into new places, we often see some sorts of miracles attached to that. That we might not see in, you know, our everyday Athens context. And there's a reason for that. The reason is the word's been here a long time. You know, and people have had 
plenty of opportunity to know the word and to hear the word. Um, and that doesn't mean there's never going to be you know, a miracle. I just think our expectation of them should not be the same type of, you know, this is going to happen or an immediate occurrence. I'm not encouraging, and at the same time, definitely not encouraging you to doubt those sorts of things. Because <coughs> God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And he's certainly capable. Do you lack God's capacity to heal someone or to do a miracle of any sort right here today? I hope not. I hope that you're not like, well, the Lord doesn't really operate like that now. But when somebody comes to Jesus, it actually is a miracle that is taking place. When somebody is set free from their sins, set free from their bondage, when even... You know, a follower of Jesus has a, has a problem, and the Lord addresses that problem. It's a miracle, and it's beautiful, and we should expect it. We should expect it to happen. We should live in hopeful expectation of the power of God at work among us. We certainly believe that Jesus is here with us. He is present. The kingdom of God has come near to you. What a, you know, it's a hopeful message. It's a hopeful message that Jesus instructs them to give. Yes, it's the same Jesus we're going to see. He has words of judgment, but he has a message of the kingdom of God has come near to you. Isn't that a great message to share with people? The kingdom of God is near. So let's keep going. So that's, you know, that's the positive response. When the people are positive to you, tell them, you know, heal the sick and tell them the kingdom of God is near. Preach the kingdom. But then, verse 10, but whatever city you enter and they do not receive you, go into its streets and say, the very dust of your city which clings to us, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near to you. But I say to you that it will be more tolerable in that day for Sodom than for that city. Okay. Again, the initial response is the same. The kingdom of God has come near to you. There's even an opportunity again given to repent, to turn from sin, to turn from weakness, to turn from a lack of faith, and to turn to Jesus. It's still there. Even then, in that message of judgment, Because it's an interesting thing that Jesus tells them to say, you know, we wipe off, this, off the dust you know, from our sandals against you. <laughs> Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near to you. Period. That's it. That's all that they're supposed to tell them. But Jesus says to his disciples, I say to you, it will be more tolerable in that, in that day for Sodom than for that city. So there was a limit to what they were supposed to say even in that, in that context. They didn't have to keep going. And what happened, you know, we do have an example of a similar thing happening in the Old Testament, the city of Nineveh, when Jonah finally gets there, and he says, um, remind her to take that toy away. Okay, <laughs> whichever one that is, let's go in there. <laughs> anyway, a lot of the toys are great. That one, I don't know what it is. But I see people going, like, twitching in their seats. Um, Anyway, good times. Um, that, but Jonah gives that message about God's judgment, and the whole city of Nineveh gets in sackcloth and ashes and fast and prays before God and asks you know, for, to not receive that judgment. And God, for multiple generations, holds that judgment off in his compassion and grace toward them. So even then, possible for them. But now listen to what he goes on to say. He said it's going to be more tolerable in that day for Sodom than for that city. Remember in the book of Genesis how God destroyed the city of Sodom and also the city of Gomorrah. But in verse 13, he says, Woe to you, Chorazon. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sodom at the judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, who are exalted to heaven, will be brought down to Hades. He who hears you hears me. He who rejects me 
who rejects you rejects me, and who rejects me rejects him who sent me. So now let's think about these towns that Jesus specifically mentions. He mentions Bethsaida, which is a town on the Sea of Galilee, and that's the home of Philip, Andrew, and Peter. Jesus did many miracles there, um, including the healing of a blind man in Mark 8, and it's very near to where Jesus fed the 5,000. So a lot of miracles were done there. Chorazin, other than the judgment described here and the same judgment described in Matthew 11, it's not mentioned anywhere else in the Bible. It's a small town located about two miles north of Capernaum, so it's not directly on the Sea of Galilee. It's a couple miles north of that. But we know that Jesus did many miracles here in Matthew 11, 20. It says, Then he began to rebuke the cities in which most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. So Jesus had done a lot of work of miracle there. Remember also that in the Word of God, we have a very limited number of the miracles that Jesus actually did. In John 20, John writes in verses 30 and 31, And truly Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. Just as a small point, this is, again, evidence of the truth of Scripture, because if somebody is just writing, you know, I'm making this up, they're not going to just introduce a new city that he hasn't talked about yet and have that as a city where, you know, is going to be judgment and where Jesus did a bunch of miracles. It's further, you know, evidence of the truth, you know, of Scripture, that this is reality of what's being spoken here. And who were Tyre and Sidon? They were Gentile cities, you know, with bad reputations. Um, if you want to read about um, Tyre, Sidon came first, then Tyre uh, comes after that. If you want to read about the amazing wealth that that city had in its history, uh, you can read Ezekiel chapter 27. You might just make a little note in your notes or in your Bible, Ezekiel 27 and 28, to read about its wealth and about its judgment. We don't have time to get into that. Uh, this morning, but it's impressive, and so is the judgment proclaimed against it. If you're going to do some sort of modern parallel, you know, you may pick some little town in Georgia where, you know, the vast majority of the people attend religious services, you know, during the week, and to say, it's going to be more tolerable for Las Vegas in that day than for you. That's the equivalent of what, even to a more heightened extent, that Jesus is saying here. So that's kind of a little bit of a shocking message. Wait, it's going to be worse for this little town in South Georgia than it is for this big city known for its wickedness and worship of idols and these things? Well, that's, you know, it's not a complete parallel because we do have to understand that Jesus himself was in these small towns. And Jesus himself was doing these miracles there. Um, Alfred Edersheim writes, The woe pronounced on those cities in which most of his mighty works were done is in proportion to the greatness of their privileges. You get that? It's in proportion to their privileges. We'll talk a little bit more about that um, toward the end. But let's go on to the results. Verse 17, it says, The 70 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. So you can see the joy and the faith increased you know, that, that these 70 had. But notice in the debrief, Jesus always takes some time with his disciples to debrief them. And because he wants, even though they've had this wonderful experience, they might not still be seeing everything correctly. And he wants to you know, continue to form and to shape their way of thinking and their way of understanding, their way of living. And so he says to them, I saw, now you talk about dramatic. They come back, Joy, we did this, and Jesus says, well, you think that's something? Okay, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. It's kind of like, yeah, you, 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 you may have done some things, but, but hold up a minute. Listen to this. You know, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I give you the authority to trample on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall by any means hurt you. 
Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. Now, this is the position that as followers of Jesus that we take in the world and that we should take in the world. That Satan is fallen. That his power is limited. That he's not stronger to God and that we are, especially because of the cross and the resurrection of Jesus, we are in the position of victory. We stand in a victorious position in the spiritual realm because of Jesus. We stand in a victorious position. What can the enemy do to you that God does not allow? The answer to that is nothing. You look at Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego when they're told to you know, bow down to the false image that Nebuchadnezzar had built up. And they don't do it. And they're brought and said, if you don't do it, you're going to get thrown into this fiery furnace. You know, and he said, what is the response to that? He said, King, you know, we don't need to answer in this matter because, you know, we're not going to do it. I'm just summarizing here. But he says, we're, we're not going to bow down. Because, the, you know, our God is the only God. They're very firm about that. Our God is the only God. And if he wants to save us, he can save us. And if he doesn't, Still let it be known to you that we will not bow down. That's powerful. Because they understood that their lives were not really in the hands of this other man, but their lives were in the hands of God. And so to be spared for them was victory in God, and even to die was also victory in God. Because they would be with him. So they were confident in their position before the Lord. And we know in that case, they were spared. As we've mentioned you know, numerous times, Stephen wasn't. He's before the angry mob. They're obviously angry with him, and God <laughs> opens the heavens and shows him even more glory, to which Stephen can't help but say, I see him at the right hand. And goes to his death. Okay, but... Understand, when it comes to the spiritual power, as the book of 1 John tells us, that he who is in us is greater than he who is in the world. That if you have Jesus, you, autom- you have the, the trump card. In every spiritual battle, in every spiritual situation, you have the trump card, and that is Jesus Christ. You hold the power. Now, the problem is that so often we look for human means to address spiritual problems. And then we wonder why it didn't work out so well. Trying to address spiritual problems by human means. Trying to fight a spiritual battle in the flesh. And and we can't do it. We can't do it. We have to have the victory that is in Jesus. All principalities, all powers are subject to him. But here's the other part of this that's just so powerful. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you. But rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. If you hear one thing this morning, hear this. Hear this, even this question. What is your your joy based on in this life? Is it based on what you've done, what you've accomplished? Or is it based on your name being written in the Lamb's book of life? Because your answer to that question really does matter. It has a lot to do with your perceived value. Is your, your perceived value of yourself based on what you've accomplished or or based on what Jesus has accomplished on your behalf. And that matters big time. That matters matters big time. Because if your joy is based on what you do, even what you do for the Lord, even as these 70 are saying, 
you know, they return with joy saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And, you know, there they are understanding that it's Jesus that gave the power, but yet the emphasis, what Jesus is getting at there is that the emphasis of their joy was in what they had done as opposed to who they are in Christ. If your joy is based on what you accomplish, even if it's for Jesus, it will never be enough. There will always have to be something else. There will always have to be another task, another you know, thing to do. And whenever you fail at that task, then, well, you're certainly not going to have any joy then. And when you succeed, your joy is going to be misplaced because it's going to be in yourself, which ultimately leads to what? Pride. And so the only solution to this is to have our joy fully rooted, firmly rooted, and that we have joy because our names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. We have joy because of Jesus and what he's done for us. Any other joy is temporary, fleeting, fickle, problematic in every way. Our truest, deepest joy has to come from Jesus himself. And if that's not your spiritual reality, then you're not going to have a joyful life, no matter what else you try. It's just, it's not going to work. Because it can't work. Here's the logic. Why can't it work? Because it's not Jesus. It's not based firmly and rooted in him. And that's what we have to have. If you want peace, you want joy. You want to be able to receive grace and to extend it to others. Your life has to be rooted, your identity has to be rooted in Jesus. Apart from that, we're just left in our flesh, even in our flesh, trying to do good things. So even, it's, it's not only about doing the right things, as these 70 did. It's about having the right perspective about what we do. And why we do it, and who's really doing it. It's having the right perspective about all these things. Because we have to be at the point where we look at ourselves in the mirror and acknowledge I am nothing, Jesus, you are everything. That without you, Jesus, I am nothing. You are everything. What does the scripture say? What does John the Baptist say? He must increase and I must decrease. Verse 21, in that hour, Jesus rejoiced in the spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and prudent and revealed them to babes. Even so, Father, so it seemed good in your sight. And all things have been delivered to me by my Father. And no one, know, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, and who the Father is except the Son, and the one to whom the Son wills to reveal him. So we have two big points from that as we're beginning to wrap up. One is that God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. It's a consistent theme throughout Scripture. Even if you go back and you read that Ezekiel 27 and 28 on the judgment of Tyre and the judgment on the king of Tyre, it's like, well, why was he judged? Because he set himself up to be a God himself. His pride had been fully blown to its, you know, its full extent of pride, and God struck him down because of it. And we see that same thing several different times in the book of Acts, so it's not just an Old Testament thing, it's also a New Testament thing. And James is the one, one who writes that God resists, resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. You know, so we, we have to humble ourselves before him. But there's also another point to this that is also important. And that is, we can only know God through revelation. 
we can only know God as he truly is and come to an understanding of Jesus with the, the work and the, the power of the Holy Spirit active. And so again, the dependence is on God. Dependence is on God. And that's clear from Scripture. Verse 23 says, Then he turned to his disciples and said privately, Blessed are the eyes which see the things you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings have desired to see what you see and have not seen it, and to hear what you hear and have not heard it. See, in in all the Old Testament, the prophets who were prophesying about the Messiah's coming, they were hopeful and some of them were even hopeful that they would see it in their time, and they didn't. That they would hear the words of the Messiah in their time, and they didn't. They had a hopeful expectation of the things to come. But these, he says, they're so blessed because they're seeing and they're hearing from Jesus Christ, the promised one, the anointed one, the Messiah. They're hearing from him directly. And I would seek to encourage us this morning that when we talk about privilege, we need to understand what real privilege is. Because there's all this talk about privilege in our world today. But you want to talk about real privilege? Real privilege is knowing Jesus. And that trumps every other privilege that there is out there. I mean, privilege is real. It's a real thing. You know, you grow up in a, in a home where there's, you know, food on the table every single meal. That's privilege. You have access to a quality education. That's privilege. You have access to health, any sort of health care. That's privilege. You have, I mean, and, and, you know, we can argue about whether those things should be privileges or basic human rights. But the fact that so many don't have and others have, then a basic human right does become a place of privilege. And some things go way beyond basic human rights. And we have plenty of that too. So those are realities. And you know, people a lot of times feel bad about privilege that they were born into. It's like, well, you didn't make that decision to be born poor or rich or to an, into an uneducated or an educated family or into this country or that country. All that was bigger than you and beyond you. What you have a responsibility for is to do the best you can with what you've been given. And that's true for every person. So yeah, if you've been born into privilege, which many of you in this room have been, myself included, I'm a 40-year-old white male living in the United States. Privilege. Lots of privilege. Lots of privilege. I have a United States passport. Lots of privilege. It's not something to go home and cry about and feel guilty about. It's something to go home before the Lord and say, Lord, you've given me this privilege. How do you want me to use it for your glory? It's not something to feel guilty about. It's something to use responsibly. Whatever privilege you have, but what I'm, gonna, what I'm contending with you today, that whatever privilege that you have based on your socioeconomic status and all of that sort of stuff is nothing compared to the privilege that you have if you know Jesus Christ as Savior and King. Because greater is he who is in you than greater is he who is in the world, which means you have access to the throne of God. You understand that you and I, if we were followers of Jesus, you can bow down before God and have access to his throne any time, any place. Because of the blood of Jesus. That is privilege that we can pray, that we can talk to God Almighty You talk about privilege. You haven't talked about privilege, so you've talked about that privilege. That you can talk to God Almighty himself. That you can say, Lord, I hurt in my life because of this, and you can receive comfort from God. That's privilege. The fact that you can have a struggle with a sin, and you can say, God Almighty, in your name I claim victory. Free me from this and receive it. If you are willing to receive it, that is privilege. But I want to say, I got to say right there, willing to receive it. That is privilege. 
that nothing can happen to you in your life without God's approval, without God saying, that's okay for you to endure. That's privilege. To know that when you die, you're going to go be with Jesus forever and ever and ever. That is, wow, that's privilege. That you'll literally get to be at the physical feet of Jesus and see the nails in his, you know, the nail prints in his feet. That's privilege. The fact that you are under the promise that Jesus says, you know, one day he's going to come and he's going to wipe away every tear from our eyes. And some of us in this life, we've shed a lot of tears. I know I've shed my fair share to this point. But probably not my fair share. Probably deserve some more. I've shed a lot of tears, but what does Jesus say? He's going to wipe all those away. And every hurt and pain and sin and problem and everything, he's ultimately doing away with. We can enjoy a lot of that now, but we'll enjoy the full, full, fullness of it, not hindered by our flesh. One day, that is privilege. The fact that we have access to the word of God, that there are still people in this world that do not have it in their own language, but that you can go to any number of translations and read it for yourself, that is privilege. Yet, we can be so guilty at times because we can take all that privilege and we can say, Jesus, I don't have time for you today. I'm too busy. So I don't have time to read your word or pray or talk to you or anything else because I have more important things to do, Jesus. And that's an abuse of privilege. Just like you can abuse the privileges that you've been born into or have currently in your socioeconomic status. You can abuse those privileges. Well, you can abuse the privileges that we have in God. And the main way that we use that is not using them. That's the main way we abuse them, is by not using the privileges that we have. Because Jesus didn't give, it to, give us these privileges for us to sit them on a shelf and to look at them every now and then. He gave us these privileges so that we would fully embrace them, so that we would grab hold of him, so that we would walk with Jesus day by day, that we would know his word and that we would live it, and it would benefit not just ourselves, but every person we come in contact to would have the opportunity of blessing in their lives because we've taken full advantage of our privileges. The problem for us as followers of Jesus is not that we have privilege. It's that we don't use our privileges to their fullest on the behalf of other people. That's our problem. It's not a lack of privilege. And what is ultimately that rooted in is because it's so easy to get wrapped up and just to be focused and to look at our own lives that are so important that we don't even have time for the creator of the universe. And then we say, Lord, why don't I have joy? Lord, why is this and that the way it is? Use your privilege. I'm preaching that to myself this morning because I'm guilty. I'm guilty of not using the privileges that Jesus has given me to the fullest. And that's awful. So what do you do now? Whether you're 75 or 25 or 19 or whatever, what do you do with it? What do you do with the the privilege that Jesus has given you? Let's live it till its fullest. For God's glory not ours, and for the good of other people. That's what it's got to be.